the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through the Gospel of John. Real love is calling, listen, truth opens up your eyes. Mercy is waiting for you with every sunrise. To believe in the one he has sent. Of course, he's talking about himself. He's going to lead them into that deeper understanding. You need to believe in me. You want to have life? You need to believe in me. But it's a belief system, not a work system. Too many people are trapped in approaching God through a system of works. Most people have a works-oriented relationship with God. I say that because all other world religions, besides Christianity, are works-oriented. Salvation isn't up to you. Jesus didn't die on the cross and then demand you pay him back with certain religious duties. Not at all. And Pastor Gary wants to stress that today. Don't allow any religion or practice take the place of grace. The incredible sacrifice Jesus made on the cross is enough to cover all of your sins, now and forever. His death brings you new life, a fresh start. So today, grab on to this promise of life from your Savior and let it fuel all you do and say and share it with others. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of John chapter 6 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. John's Gospel, chapter 6. We left off uh, right around verse 24, and we're going to get into a section of Scripture here. John, chapter 6, is one of the most, um, in some ways, difficult chapters. Um, If you'd prefer to teach it, I'll sit down. Um, But it's, in many levels, difficult because it it relates to doctrine. Uh, It relates to some words that Jesus said that were so difficult that many of his disciples leave him. And they will no longer follow him. And when we use the word disciples in this story, we're talking about disciples as those who were followers, those who were students of Jesus. You know, his 12 disciples, also known as apostles, uh, were were 12. But he also had, probably at this time in in John chapter 6, a couple hundred followers. And many of those followers are going to peel off and they're going to leave Jesus. So what in the world does Jesus say that is so controversial here that many disciples will leave him and no longer follow him? So we're going to look into these words and they are challenging. As you read these words with me, you're going to wince a little bit. You're going to go, what in the world is he talking about? And we have the advantage of knowing the context of the whole story, whereas the people of Jesus' day were hearing this for the first time and thinking, how bizarre. 
are these words coming out of Jesus' mouth? So we're going to have to give a little context to what he says, and we're going to have to frame it properly. Uh, This sixth chapter, I will tell you in advance, is a chapter of great division between the Protestant church and the Roman Catholic church because of one particular way that you can interpret this chapter or not. And so I'll mention that, not as a matter of contention, but just as a matter of pointing out the differences. So this chapter is packed with a lot of stuff. It's a very lengthy chapter. There are In chapter 6, there are 71 verses, so uh, a very long chapter, and we'll see if we can get through it. Let's start here in verse 25, where we left off last week. And and just to remind you, we are in the city, the town of Capernaum, which is on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. This is where Jesus' ministry occurred primarily for three, three and a half years. And so this is where he is, and we're going to find out in verse 59 that he's teaching in the synagogue. So what I'm about to read to you, he's actually teaching in the synagogue. So I want you to kind of imagine, put yourself there. Those of you who were with me last month in Israel, we went to the the synagogue in Capernaum where the foundation still dates back to first century. So we know where the synagogue was in Capernaum because the foundation still exists. So put yourself there, like, okay, it's Wednesday night in Capernaum, and it's a church service, Jesus is the teacher, he's the rabbi, and he's saying these things we're about to read, okay? So here we go, verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the lake, at Capernaum, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, you were looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Now, he's referring back to, in the first part of chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000, which we've talked about on many occasions as probably the feeding of the 10,000 or 15,000, because they only counted the men in those days. And so the crowd that he fed has followed him because they didn't know where he went. They found him in Capernaum, and they're like, Jesus, hey, we found you. And he says, you know what, to be honest with you, the only reason you're looking for me is because I gave you lunch. That's the only reason. I gave you a happy meal and your belly was filled and so now you're happy to find me. But he says, listen, verse 27, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. So he's trying to get their minds and their hearts off of just the physical and onto the spiritual onto, you know, what it means to have relationship with him. He says, you know, you're only seeking me because of what I can do for you, fill in your bellies. But you need to seek me on a deeper level for what I can do for you to fill your soul, to fill your heart. Well, they ask in verse 28, what must we do? And I pointed this out last week at the end of the Bible study. So notice this, circle the word do. What must we do to do, circle that word, the works, circle that word, God requires. What must we do to do the works that God requires? Notice their emphasis is on what? It's on works. It's how can we perform? What can we do? What is it that we can, you know, perform in ways that God requires us to do these things? So verse 29, Jesus answered, well, the work of God is this, to believe, circle that word, to believe in the one he has sent. Of course, he's talking about himself. He's going to lead them into that deeper understanding. You need to believe in me. You want to have life? You need to believe in me. But it's a belief system, not a work system. Too many people are trapped in approaching God through a system of works. 
Most people have a works-oriented relationship with God. I say that because all other world religions, besides Christianity, are works-oriented. And they may not even be working towards the true and living God. But the human heart is bent to, what can I do? How can I perform? You ask a Muslim, do you have any hope, any assurance that you're going to go to heaven when you die? The answer is no. No assurance. Because their desire is that at the end of their life, their good works will exceed the bad things that they've done. It's a works-oriented approach. Christianity is a belief system of faith in the work that God has done. Okay, It's not about the work that we can do. It is the work that God has done by sending His Son Jesus to die on a cross, and we then put our faith and trust in Him. That's a very huge distinction about Christianity from all other world religions. It is not what we do for God. It is what God has done for us, and then He calls us to respond to what He has done for us by dying on a cross for our sins that we might have life through faith in His name. Now, he's got to get the Jewish audience here off of the works-oriented system because up to this point, it has been about works. The law is about works. The law is about duty. The law is about performance. And Jesus said, I've come not to abolish the law, but that the law might be fulfilled through me. The whole works-oriented system was to get people to the place where they realized in their own exasperation, I can't work my way to being a good enough person. And when you get to that realization, then you cry out for a savior. When you realize there's not enough good things you can possibly do to be good enough to get to heaven, then you cry out for a Savior, and that Savior is Jesus. So he's trying to turn their hearts and their minds and their eyes towards the truth in him. And so verse 30, so they asked him, well, what miraculous sign then will you give that we may see it and believe? Okay, they're, they're starting to get there, but they're like, okay, now what are you going to perform for us that we can believe you? What will you do? And then they add this. Our forefathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. See, what are they saying to Jesus? They're saying, okay, look, what are you going to do to to prove to us that we should believe in you? Because, and then they call on their own history, Moses gave manna in the desert. So we know Moses was legit because Moses prayed and God rained down manna from heaven, which the book of Psalms describes as the bread of angels, all right? And you know what it is, right? You know what it is. Come on, shout it out. Krispy Kreme donuts, amen. That's what they are. That's what manna was, okay? But anyway, at least that's what I want to believe it was. I mean, can you imagine that Krispy Kreme just raining down from heaven? Would that be like, no. Just let me just stop and think about it for a minute. Praise God. It's like eating baby angels. You know what I'm talking about. But anyhow... So here they come. Would anybody like to just be sprawled out in a conveyor belt or a Krispy Kreme donut? Let me just see your hands. Amen. Yeah, just, I mean, it would just be wonderful. But anyhow, so here's the deal. Manna from heaven coming down. The Israelites saying, we know Moses was legit because, you know, when he was in charge and he was the prophet of God, manna was coming down from heaven. We ate our fill of manna. So Moses is legit. What are you going to do for us to prove that you're legit? Now, Jesus says to them, verse 32, He said to them, I tell you the truth, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. And then Jesus declared, 
I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Now underline that verse there, verse 35, I am the bread of life. What we're going to see through the course of the Gospel of John are seven I am statements that Jesus makes. This is the first one. The first of the seven I am statements, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. He says it here in verse 35. He's going to repeat it in verse 48. He says, I am the bread of life in verse 48, because Jesus knows that one of the first rules of teaching, this is important, one of the first rules of teaching is repetition. That's why he says in verse 35, he says it again in verse 48. For one of the first rules of teaching is repetition. The second rule of teaching is repetition. The third rule of teaching is repetition. The fourth rule of teaching is no application. What is wrong with you? Anyway, you get the idea. So Jesus is repeating himself, but he says, I am the bread of life. Now, this is going to sound a little funny, and I, and I somewhat mean it to be funny, but I mean it to be very seriously as well. The reason he says, I am the bread of life, is because he is drawing on the major staple of the people of his day, which is bread. I can relate, all right? I love bread. Oh, I just love bread. It's almost an idol in my life. I have to be careful. I love bread. Anybody else love bread? Yeah, I love bread. Any kind of bread. I've never met a bread I didn't like. Bread was the major staple of the people of the day. That was their main food source. So, this is where it's going to sound a little funny, but I I mean this sincerely. If Jesus was predominantly teaching to an Asian culture, he might say, I am the rice of life. I'm serious. When you look at the context, he was saying it so that they would understood the main staple. If he were to be speaking primarily to an Italian culture, he would be saying, I am the pasta of life. To an Hispanic culture, I am the tortilla of life. (laughs) Or I am the tres leches of life. All right, I love tres leches. I am really admitting to all of my weaknesses now, bread and tres leches and all these things. But anyway, Jesus is drawing on the actual staple of the culture of his day. He's speaking to the culture. And the culture of his day was bread was the main staple. I am the bread of life. Now that's important to point out because... He's wanting them to realize that the main thing that you rely on for your physical sustenance is similar to me, only I want you to translate the physical sustenance to the spiritual. And they start out with this whole idea of manna, and he's now going to make this parallel with himself. Now, when you look at this story here, let me just finish down through verse 40. Again, verse 35, then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Verse 36, but as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone 
who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. All right, your attention for a moment. There's a tension here in the words of Jesus, and the tension is intended to stay intact. And the problem is that a lot of times, good-minded, good-willed Christians get together and they want to parse out these words and they want to make whole arguments about were you chosen or did you exercise your free will to come to God? Because Jesus uses terms interchangeably in that section I just read from verse 35 down through verse 40. You'll notice with me in verse 37, he talks about all that the Father gives me will come to me. And see, those those who are persuaded that you know the only people who get saved are the ones that God predetermines to be saved will point to that verse and say, see, God's predetermined some people and it's only the ones that God gives to Jesus. And he repeats that phrase in verse 39. And this is the will of him who sent me that I shall lose none of all that he has given me. Okay? You can make an argument if you want to just pull those couple of phrases out of that passage. But then it's equally challenging, however, to look at within the same paragraph, Jesus speaks about and addresses the exercise of the human free will at the same time. Because he uses phrases like, whoever comes to me. Verse 35, Jesus declared, I'm the bread of life, he who comes to me. And the rest of verse 35, and he who believes in me. In verse 37, right after he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, then he says, and whoever comes to me. Wait a minute, I thought it was only the ones that you were given. And then Jesus adds, and whoever. But whoever is a pretty broad term. And then he also says it further down in verse 40. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up to the last days. Not an exclusive few, but everyone, whosoever. So you look at... And all that Jesus says there, and he talks about those that the Father has given him, but he also talks about whoever comes. So which is it? Is it only those that the Father gives or those whoever comes? Are we predetermined, predestined, and chosen according only to the will of God and no exercise of human free will? Or is it all about the human free will and the exercise of free will and believing in Jesus? The answer to those questions is yes, that's right. It's yes. It's both of the, it's all of that. The tension is kept intact. Okay? You can't dismiss the sovereignty of God, but neither can you dismiss the free will of humanity that he's given us. Does he know in advance all those who will choose him? Of course he does, because he knows all things. Does that mean that he necessarily picks and chooses, like, you know, pulling the petals off of a daisy? This one, yes. This one, not. This one, yes. This one, not. No. It is not predetermined in that way because then it would be a violation of the very free will that he's given us. So his foreknowledge about all things does not preclude some people to a select small group of people that he's predetermined. So we have to make room for the discussion. There's great debate about it, and I could go on and on about this. It's, you know, when we do our Q&A weekend, usually at the end of the year, this is the, this is the number one question I constantly get. You know, or what's your take on predestination? What's your take on free will? What's your take on the sovereignty of God versus the exercise of human free will? And, and I don't say this to, you know, try to appease both groups. I just say this honestly because when you look at the full counsel of scripture, you can make an argument separately for either one, but you shouldn't get stuck in one camp on the extreme. You should realize that it's somewhere in the middle is God's sovereignty and man's free will and the exercise of those things work in concert. Not exclusively, but in concert together. 
Jesus says it here. On the one hand, he says, those the Father gives me. On the next hand, he says, everyone who wills. So we need to keep that tension intact as well. As well. Now, what I want to, what I want to point out to you, however, before we keep reading, because it's going to get dicier here with some of the stuff that Jesus says, is that Jesus is going to draw a comparison here between manna in the days of Moses and the bread of life that he is. And I'm going to give you some of this up front so you understand the metaphorical language that he is speaking with here. These are metaphors that he's going to be talking about here to drive home the point about how he needs to be, Jesus needs to be, the one that we consume completely and are um, you know, completely devoted to in order for us to understand what spiritual life is. And so he's going he's to build on their example of Moses and manna. For example, what we're going to read here is he's going to say, listen, the manna that was given was perishable bread from heaven, but the living bread from heaven is just that. It's living. It's not perishable. Then he's going to make the comparison, your forefathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died, but anyone can eat the bread of life that I'm talking about and live forever. Speaking about himself. He's going to make the distinction that the manna from heaven is physical food, but the bread of life is spiritual food. And paraphrasing Jesus, okay, paraphrasing him, what he's basically going to end up saying here in the following verses is, just as you partake of physical food to live temporarily, partake of me by faith and you will live forever. That's the basic message he's going to be getting across here, although many people won't grasp the message here. And so in essence, what we're going to read here as well, one other little bullet point here, is that the sacrificial life of Jesus is the ultimate satisfaction for the hungry soul. So keep all this in mind as we read through this, because otherwise you're going to get stuck as they did. And you're going to be thinking very literally, and you're going to be thinking manna from heaven, and you're going to miss the greater picture in the spiritual meaning. So here we go now, after he says all this about I'm the bread of life and whoever comes to me will never go hungry, who believes in me will never be thirsty, you can have eternal life. Then look at verse 41, at this the Jews began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Okay, so they, they are... They are reducing him to, isn't this just, don't we know his parents, Joseph and Mary? Which they had even that wrong, okay? Joseph was not his biological father, but he was his adoptive dad. And, you know, we know this guy. He's just like us. You know, it's Joseph and Mary. This is Joseph and Mary's kid. How can he say that I've come down from heaven? Now, Jesus says in verse 43, stop grumbling among yourselves. Jesus answered, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Now, that's an important truth there, by the way, because when we come to accept Christ, the reason we open our hearts to Christ is because God is already working on our hearts. He's softening us to get to the place of surrender. So that's why Jesus says, no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. This is the work of God's Spirit in our hearts, even before we profess with our lips that Jesus is the Christ. And then he refers to the scriptures. Look at verse 45. He says, it is written in the prophets. They will all be taught by God. Everyone who listens to the Father and 
learns from him, comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. I tell you the truth. He who believes has everlasting life. Okay, again, belief. It's belief. It's not what can you do. It's what can you believe. He who believes has eternal life. And then he repeats this again in verse 48. I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate the manna in the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. Verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. We're so glad you joined us for this edition of Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. Pastor Gary's been going through the book of John. If you missed any part of this message, you can hear it again on our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. You might want to download our mobile app so you have these teachings with you on the go. That way you'll never miss a message from Pastor Gary's studies, and you'll always have encouragement from God's Word at your fingertips. Find a link to download the app for your iPhone or Android device at our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. While you're there, feel free to take some time to learn about the church this radio ministry originates from, Cornerstone Chapel. We'd love to meet you. Please join us for worship and Bible study. You'll find all you need to know about service times and other info on our website. Again, that's cornerstoneconnection.cc. We hope and pray you've been blessed by today's teaching in the book of John. Please know that we're praying for you too. Although we're out of time for today, keep reading on your own in the book of John until Pastor Gary continues teaching through this extraordinary account of Jesus' life on Cornerstone Connection. No place to go But still you know